2000 Northwest Christian Education Conference. Evidence for God's Existence. Dr. Phil Fernandes. Uh, I'm, I'm the president of the Institute of Biblical Defense. Uh, I know they, they just list me as the pastor of Trinity Bible Fellowship, but um, they asked for a list of my credentials, and I sent it to them, and they, they picked and choose what they thought was essential, but they left out the, uh, the Institute of Biblical Defense, and that's pretty much the organization I'm representing today. And basically, uh, the Institute, if you want any information on it, you can get free books, free audio cassettes back there, and, and uh, uh, any information you would need about our website uh, or our address or phone number, things of that sort. Uh, we, we basically defend the Christian faith. It's called Christian Apologetics. And uh, I take debates on college campuses, uh, usually with atheists, um, and, uh, and then lecture in uh, Christian churches to help train uh, Christians in their defense uh, of the faith. So I just want to let you know that I am affiliated with the Institute of Biblical Defense. I'm the president and founder of the organization, and uh, we are into... Uh, uh, defending the Christian faith. In fact, one of my research assistants, uh, Paul Party, has given a few talks today as well. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is evidence for God's existence. And uh, this is an issue. It's, it's really... I have mixed feelings about this because, uh, number one, the, the universities, the media, is saturated with secular humanistic thinking which basically is the uh, point of view that comes from uh, atheism. Uh, at the same time, there is a changing of the guard that is going on. And what is happening is that the atheist professors are little by little being replaced uh, by New Age or postmodern uh, professors. Uh, two hours from now, in a different room, uh, room 113 A and B, uh, I'll be speaking on postmodernism, which I think is the danger of the future. Uh, but right now there are atheists, and I believe God loves all mankind, so we need to witness even to these atheists, but basically they are, are the dinosaurs. Um, myself, um, much greater thinkers than myself, like uh, J.P. Moreland, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Norman Geisler, uh, Michael Horner, are basically going around on university and uh, college campuses and, and mopping up the last few dinosaurs among the atheist thinkers. Um, but what we are seeing is a return to a big spiritual emphasis. Unfortunately, um, there goes what coincides with that is a rejection of Christianity. And so what we're looking at is a... Uh, uh, return of paganism, neo-paganism, and postmodernism is kind of the intellectual, so sophisticated, academic open door for the New Age movement to explode in, in this country, and I think we're seeing that right now. Um, but if you have friends that are skeptical about God's existence, um, um, I think you can put this uh, lecture to good use and it is important to prove the existence of the God of the Bible um, at the same time in the very near future the debates aren't going to be does God exist but uh, which God exists uh, is man God um, are we sinners 
Um, but the door is open to the spiritual, but it's open to uh, New Age neo-paganism. If you bow your heads, we'll open with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just thank you, Lord, that uh, you are a good God. We thank you that uh, despite the fact that you are just and that you must judge and punish all sin, that you have chosen to provide a way to judge our sins, uh, but to set us free and to save us, and that you punished your Son in our place. I just pray, Lord, that uh, for those who are out there that think that there is no God and that there's no hope, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to witness to them, to share the gospel message with them, but to also answer their objections and defend the Christian faith and uh, the existence of the God of the Bible. We love you, Lord. We pray for these people. And uh, we just thank you that not only do you save us, give us a salvation we don't deserve, and you guide us throughout our lives, but you choose to use us. You choose to do your perfect work through imperfect vessels like myself. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, if you look at that blue handout, that's kind of for you to go home and, and, and chew on. I'm not going to really refer to that, but I go into a little bit more depth on some of the arguments that are used on, on that piece of paper than I do uh, on the evidence for God's existence with the Institute of Biblical Defense uh, heading. I'm going to be primarily working off of this one, okay? So uh, I would recommend that you look at that and any extra notes that you need, you can add uh, to them. What I want to do first is look at some traditional arguments for God's existence. By that, what I mean is arguments that have been used uh, by Christian thinkers throughout the centuries. In fact, some of these arguments were used um, hundreds of years before Christ walked the earth by Greek philosophers uh, who believed in the existence of uh, some type of personal, rational God as the... Uh, uh, at least as the designer of the universe, if not the creator uh, as well. Uh, but whatever the case, we'll look at some of these traditional arguments, spend a little bit of time on them, and then I'll t talk a little bit about uh, the argument that I use. Now, depending on the debate, uh, this argument can be shortened up or lengthened, uh, but I'll probably only spend a few minutes talking about my cumulative case for God in fact, I've added a 13th point. You might want to add it. There's point number two, the cumulative case for God. Number 13 is free will. Um, um, you know, if atheism is true, then our actions are determined by chemical reactions that occur in our brains. So how can you hold someone morally responsible for doing what his brain made him do? And so just the fact that we hold people morally responsible uh, tells me uh, that we do act as if they are moral free agents. We do lock up people who act like animals and infringe on other people's rights. And that seems to presuppose that our actions are more than just the results of chemical exchanges going on in our brain. Okay? I mean, if I caught a cold, you wouldn't throw me in jail for catching a cold. But, uh, you know, my body just 
went through some changes that weren't real good. Uh, but if somebody blows up a building and kills innocent people, if uh, atheistic materialism is true, um, the idea that nothing exists but matter, then uh, it's just like catching a cold. Something happened in his brain that he had no control over, and that made him do what he did. Uh, now, the atheist has an out here. He could say, okay, well, maybe there is an invisible, immaterial soul. Where do you get that uh, in a, in, with no God and no spiritual realm? Same arguments they use against God or just as well against the immaterial soul. So it's, it's really a lose-lose situation for the atheist. Uh, but my cumulative case, I've used that against uh, probably America's leading atheist today, Dr. Michael Martin, philosophy professor of Boston University. In fact, that debate's a 120-page uh, debate uh, over the Internet, and you can still see that on our website, so www.biblicaldefense.org. Um, so if you want to look into that, you can look into that. And uh, if, what you'll notice there is there's a lot of arguing going on, but I don't know if the atheist uh, thinkers just don't understand what I'm getting at, but what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm not basing my whole case for God's existence on one argument. I'm building a cumulative case. So with each argument, the probability of God's existence rises. And I'm arguing that in these 13 points, it is more reasonable that theism is true than atheism. Theism offers a, a more adequate explanation than atheism. So I'll just turn to that to wrap it up, um, wrap up the talk. But right now I want to talk about the traditional arguments for God's existence because this is where, this is what I draw from. I draw from the thought of Christian thinkers throughout the uh, centuries. Um, you know, I don't want anybody leaving today and saying, wow, this guy is brilliant. He thought of all this stuff himself. No, no, I didn't. I just did a lot of reading. And maybe every once in a while I put my own little spin on something, but... The fact of the matter is, well, what's hurting the evangelical church today is that we're not only biblically illiterate, but we're also illiterate when it comes to the uh, vast uh, intellectual resources that we've had for, for the past 2,000 years. Uh, giants like uh, Anselm, Aquinas, Augustine, and, uh, and uh, Calvin and, and uh, Luther themselves also use traditional arguments uh, at times. So let's take a look at some of the traditional arguments for God's existence, and uh, then I'll close up the discussion with the cumulative case for God. Uh, the first is the cosmological argument. Now, let me say this. There's three different types of cosmological arguments. I'm only going to talk about one of them. I'm going to talk about the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence, which uh, uh, the uh, Muslim... Muslims also believe in the existence of a personal God. Uh, Muslim mathematicians uh, got a lot of use out of this. You find uh, St. Bonaventure, uh, who lived at the time of uh, Thomas Aquinas, he also got some mileage out of uh, this type of argumentation. Aquinas's cosmological argument was a little different. Leibniz's was a little different as well. And I, you can look into that a little bit further on the blue sheet of paper. By the way, I don't know if there's any left, but... The pink books that are in the back, they're there for nothing. If you want one, take one. If you want one for your friend, take one. And there's an entire chapter devoted to my cumulative case for God's existence there. So uh, make sure you pick up one of those on the way out if, if you don't have it already. Um, 
whatever the case, the cosmological argument is just the, the argument about that either the universe needs a cause or something in the universe needs a cause and you trace it back to its ultimate cause and uh, the ultimate first cause must be an un uncaused cause, must be an eternal being. Um, atheists going into this century or going into the last century depending on how you date it, uh, going into the 1900s uh, the atheists, one of their strongest arguments against theism was that we live in an eternal universe um, that the universe did not have a beginning um, now there were good philosophical arguments against an eternal universe that they were ignoring but as far as scientific data went there wasn't a whole lot that we could uh, uh, use to prove that the universe had a beginning that all began to change with Einstein Einstein tried to avoid it it was one of the results of his thinking um, uh, but he tried to avoid it. He changed his math a little bit. Uh, but Hubble came along in uh, 1929 and proved that the universe was expanding in uh, all different directions. Okay, As you move forward in time, the universe is expanding. It's much like what we would see uh, caused by an explosion. Okay, If there was a bomb... Uh, here, from this center point, the bomb would blow everything into all different directions, okay? And that's what we see the universe uh, doing. Um, what this tells us, though, is that as we move forward in time, the universe is expanding. So if we go backwards in time, the universe will be getting smaller and smaller. Till eventually you reach a point, remember, we're talking about the physical universe here, Certainly, as Christians, we believe that non-physical entities exist, like God and angels. Um, but we're talking about the physical universe. And scientists say that eventually, if you go back far enough in time, the universe was a point of infinite density. Uh, or a point in dimensionless space. And remember, we're talking about the physical universe. Now, why do they use big words like that? Well, probably reason number one is job security. You know, if we can understand what we're talking about, they have a hard time justifying their paycheck, just like philosophers. You have to use, you know, big words and theologians and all. But, but I, I think more importantly, they don't want to use the word nothing. There was a time when the universe did not exist, okay? See, for something to be infinitely dense, it means, to be, that it means that something is small or compact to an unlimited degree. But no matter how small something is, it's only small or compact to a limited degree. To be small or compact to an unlimited degree uh, means it's not there. Okay? Uh, a point, same thing with a point of dimensionless space. If a point takes up no dimensions in space, a physical point, we're talking about a physical universe, if a point takes up no dimensions in space, it takes up no space. Okay? See, the conclusion of the uh, Big Bang model for the universe, that's the, the name of this uh, 
theory which is gaining more and more support. The uh, conclusion of this is that space, matter, energy, and time all had a beginning. Okay? And uh, basically what it amounts to is whatever caused the universe to come into existence must be non-material, uh, uh, non-spatial, and non-temporal, uh, which is exactly what guys like Aquinas and Augustine argued that God is eternal. He exists in the eternal now, not everlasting time. Time had a beginning when he created the first changing beings. Um, now, there have been some attempts to refute this, you know, because this was obvious to the atheist that this sounds like Genesis 1-1. Even an agnostic like Robert Jastrow, the founder and the head of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies at NASA, even uh, an agnostic like him, one of the world's leading astronomers, even he had to admit in his book, God and the Astronomers, that the Big Bang model, the analogy that he closed his book, God and the Astronomers, he says it's, it's, it's as if the scientists have climbed the highest mountains of knowledge. And then when they got to the top, they pulled themselves up to the highest peak, and they looked and they saw a band of theologians who've been waiting there for centuries for them. Now, the only disagreement I have with that is that uh, we've been there for two millennium. In fact, the, if you count the, the, Old, the Old Testament and the Jewish faith, we've been there for 3,500 years. So it hasn't been just a few centuries. Um, but whatever the case, what he's saying is the Big Bang model sounds a lot like in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, God said, boom. Okay? Um, so whatever the case, that argues for the beginning of the universe. There's also the second law. Oh, by the way, the steady state model tried to argue that as the universe is expanding, these are atheistic attempts to escape the implications of the Big Bang model. Steady state models that as the universe is, ex is expanding, maybe there's new matter being created, coming into existence, totally popping into existence out of nothing to fill up the gaps. Okay? Absolutely no evidence for that. The more evidence for the Big Bang, even the guys who founded the steady state model don't believe it anymore. Okay? So that's, that's just been thrown out. Uh, another contender was the oscillating model. That as the universe expands, eventually gravity will pull it back together again for another big bang, and then uh, another big bang, and another big bang, and it'll go on and on forever. Several problems with that. Number one, the density of the universe is not the right amount for uh, gravity to pull it back. Number two, if gravity did pull it back, uh, there's no known principle of law of physics that would cause a second Big Bang, and a third Big Bang, and a fourth Big Bang. And the other problem is the second law of thermodynamics, that the amount of usable energy in the universe is winding down as we go forward in time. Okay? So in other words, even if there were multiple Big Bangs, which is very unscientific, even if there were multiple Big Bangs, they would, it would slow down and eventually uh, the last there would be a last Big Bang, which means there would still have to be a first Big Bang, and you haven't escaped the need for a creator. Okay? Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, and with the second law of thermodynamics, that also tells us, uh, you know, as it tells us the amount of 
Though the amount of energy remains constant, no energy is now being created or destroyed. That's the first law of thermodynamics. Energy does change forms, and when it changes forms, it becomes less and less usable to us. In other words, if you completely burn a log to get heat from it, to use the energy that's available there, if you completely burn it and there's nothing left but ashes, you can't burn it a second time. Okay? And uh, so in a closed system, which is the way we have to scientifically look at the universe, we have to look at the universe as, as if there's nothing outside and then look at it to, to determine whether or not it needs a cause from the outside. Uh, since the universe is a closed system, it is running out of usable energy. It means eventually, in the future, if there is no intervention from the outside, and we Christians know there will be, but if there is no intervention from the outside, the universe will be made up of totally useless energy. The universe will die. But that means if you go backwards in time, eventually you reach a starting point where all the energy in the universe was usable. So, the second law of thermodynamics plus the Big Bang model have given strong evidence for the beginning of the universe. And it also refutes the oscillating model because it means that with these Big Bangs they'll be running out of energy. It'd be like, uh, you know, anybody here, anybody here as old as me that remembers the Super Bowls? Where you throw them and they bounce and they just keep bouncing and bouncing. Well, let's say we got the, the, the ultimate Super Bowl. I mean, this thing would just bounce and bounce and bounce. And we got Randy Johnson, an old friend of ours that used to pitch for the Mariners. And, uh, and he took that Super Bowl and he threw it 102 miles an hour off that wall. And it just bounced off that wall. And let's just say that Randy Johnson had surgery and his left arm was a bionic arm. So now instead of throwing 100 miles an hour, he's throwing 400 miles an hour. Well, no matter how many times it bounces, okay, eventually the second law of thermodynamics catches up to it and that ball is going to come to, to a, a place where it's just standing still. And it's the same way. The second law of thermodynamics does that with the oscillating model of the universe which, you know, Carl Sagan to his death was clinging to that, though he openly admitted there was absolutely no scientific evidence in its favor. He was hoping that a hundred years from now science might vindicate him. Um, but whatever the case, whatever has a beginning needs a cause. Okay? Something has an absolute beginning, it couldn't cause its own beginning because then it would have to pre-exist its own existence in order to bring its own existence about. You can't pre-exist your own existence. That's absurd, okay? Um, and it couldn't just pop into existence out of nothing. I mean, we, we don't believe that magicians really do bring rabbits into existence out of nothing. How could nothing produce something? Okay, we could spend a lot of time talking about nothing. Philosophers earn their living doing things like that. But nothing is nothing. Therefore, nothing has no power. It has no causal power. Nothing is nothing, therefore nothing can do nothing, therefore nothing can cause nothing. If something exists and it had a beginning, something had to cause it to come into existence. Okay? Now, I think that that makes a, a real strong case the beginning of the universe, that something outside of the universe had to cause it to come into existence. 
And that cause had to be non-temporal, non-spatial, and non-material. But the atheist might say, but yeah, but maybe that thing, whatever it is, had a cause, and maybe that had a cause, and it goes back forever and ever and ever. Well, there's good philosophical arguments that show uh, that it's impossible to have an infinite regress of causes and effects in the past. I'll give you one of the most simple arguments on this area, just due to lack of time. Um, basically, if there were an infinite number of causes and effects in the past, since it's impossible to traverse or cross an infinite number of things, okay, because no matter how many things you traversed, you still have an infinite number more to go, we would never reach the present effect, which is the universe. Okay? So basically, there had to be a first cause. There's no other way. There had to be a first cause, and this first cause is non-material, non-spatial, and non-temporal, is uh, an eternal being. Now, when you move on from the cosmological argument to the moral argument, then we could start to see, if you, if you, rather than using these arguments separately, if you began to group them like I do in my cumulative case, we start to find out things about this first uncaused cause of the universe, this eternal uncaused cause of the universe. And the moral argument argues that there is an eternal, unchanging moral law that exists above all mankind, and this implies, very strongly implies, the existence of an eternal, unchanging moral lawgiver above man. Now, for some people, just hearing that is enough. For most people, it's not, so I go to great lengths to, to argue for that over uh, in my debates and all, but I'll just give you a summary of, of that argument. Everybody, everybody in the mother's brother admits to the existence of moral laws, even the atheists. The question is, where do they come from? And so a lot of atheists say, yeah, there's moral laws, but they come from each individual. Okay? So, let's test that out. Do moral laws come from each individual? Well, there's a problem if you hold to that view. What's the problem? The problem is we can't call guys like Hitler and Stalin uh, evil for... Uh, uh, their actions it, because the, they had their own moral law so we want to appeal to a moral law that is above each individual and so the atheist might argue okay well then it's society society determines each society determines what is right and what is wrong this is very popular in uh, postmodern circles today um, and if you don't know what that means uh, I'll make a commercial for my next talk um, because then I'll, I'll go into more depth. But it's basically they, the moral laws in this area, they would say uh, each society comes up with it. Well, the problem there is if each society comes up with their own moral laws, then the American society and the Allies could not condemn the actions of the society Nazi Germany. But we did, and we want to continue to, confirm, to uh, condemn those kinds of actions. So some atheists might say, well, you know what? Maybe it's a world consensus that determines what is right and what is wrong and judges each society. 
for a first glance that sounds good until you look at what world consensus has produced in the past. I mean, world consensus used to be the earth is flat. Or that it was on the back of a turtle. You know, that's, that's not a pretty good, not too good of a track record there. World consensus used to be that slavery is it's perfectly okay. It's okay for one human being to enslave another human being. Okay? World consensus used to be that the woman was property of the man. Okay? Now, atheists cry out against those things just as much as Christians do. In fact, I'll go so far to say when we see these atheists like Bertrand Russell, late Bertrand Russell, they're always protesting something that's going on in the world, some atrocity somewhere else in the world. What they're saying is, I don't like the way the world is today. The world could be a better place to live. Okay? So they condemn the world consensus. So, they, so they're actually, whether they admit it or not, they're appealing to a moral law that is above all individuals, all societies, and any world consensus. But not only that, because they want to make the world a better place tomorrow than it is today, and a better place than it was yesterday, they're acting as if this moral law is an unchanging moral law. It doesn't change with time. It's an eternal unchanging moral law. So you can condemn Christianity all you want. The fact of the matter is you got to live in God's creation. This is the only universe we've got. And God created it. So we slam Christianity and we say it's not true and this and that. But Francis Schaeffer in his writings pointed out time and time again the atheist still has to live like Christianity is true. One of uh, Schaeffer's professors, Cornelius Van Til, used to argue that non-Christians are always living on borrowed capital from the Christian worldview because they've got nothing in their bank account, okay? And, uh, and, and so basically what we need is a moral lawgiver that is above all individuals, all societies, and any world consensus. If not, we better keep our mouth shut about the atrocities going on in the world. And the atheist doesn't want to do it, and obviously the Christian shouldn't do that as well. We, we should uh, come out against evil wherever evil may be found. Uh, but there's another thing about the moral law. It's not like natural laws, the physical laws of nature. Because the physical laws of nature are descriptive. They describe the way things are. They don't prescribe the way things should be. But moral laws, uh, you know, they're like, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. They're prescriptive. Anybody here ever try to get a prescription drug without the signature from your doctor? 